0: Folks, who are listening to the Yeshai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. Welcome to the Land of Israel Network. It is a pleasure to be back in the land of Israel. And if I'm in the land of Israel, I want to be in Jerusalem, in the heart of Jerusalem, and that is in Beit Midjar Sulamia Cove with Rabbi Mike Foyer on Spiritual Cafe. Rabbi Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, uh, so good to see you on the other side of the ocean. Yes, we were together in Los Angeles, California. City of Angels, the other City of Angels, and it was, uh, it was great to see you in front of so many uh, uh, Jews and, and lovers of Israel and connecting, bringing the spirit of religious Zionism, or meaning to say Torah, and the land of Israel uh, to uh, our brothers and sisters and, and, and friends. Out in Los Angeles. It was great to have you and there.
1: And to share at least an hour of Shabbos, which we don't get to do.
0: That's right. That's right. We shared an hour of Shabbos there. We were on a panel. I, I was moderating and it was a panel with you, Nissan Darshan and Leitner, and the head of uh, World Mizrahi, Rabbi Daron Perez. It was really, really fun, uh, and, and it was just special to also be like a, a, a compact team of, of like lovers of Israel, from Israel, bringing that spirit just what i'm always talking about shaking hands across the atlantic that was just a lot of fun and um we missed we missed the tour portion here in israel we missed the uh, we
1: did but meet bar we missed the beginning of this book it's a little bit hard for me i know i've been thinking about it
0: uh, it's it's bothering me a little bit and this is uh, one of my let's say top 5 favorite books in of the five books of moses wah, wah, and wah. <laughs> but i really do they all have their own flavor this book i like to call it the book of politics that's what i call it anyway um and certainly, it's it's kind of it's it's about leadership. It's about leadership challenges, challenges to the leadership, um, uh, and really dealing now not with the individuals uh, of the Book of Genesis, and not with the kind of uh, ex slave masses. Of the book of Exodus, it's not the legalistic uh, dealings with the priestly class and the Levitical class of the book of Leviticus or so the book of Deuteronomy. Now it's like it's
1: politics. I want to poke a little bit at your politics term. Sure. Um, although it might be definitional, I it, I see it as a battle of visions here in this book. I mean, we talk about Moses versus Korach. Um, I hear the political element, but it's really. Uh, a deeper struggle, and I guess for me, politics just has a certain shallow connotation. You
0: know, you know. It's interesting you say that because a lot of times in talks, I will say to people, "Don't say politics; say leadership." Right? So we're talking about leadership. This week's portion, Baalotcha, is about leadership. No question, leaders and leaders will be judged. There will be leaders who are judged by God, punished. There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of questions. There's also going to be dealing with the nation. Uh, as a big complaining mass, which is a problem. We're going get, to get to that in a second.
1: And a big part of politics.
0: Absolutely. That's what it's about. It's about leadership. Before we get to the issues of Torah portion of Baalucha, a few uh, a, a few housework uh, issues that I, I want to get out of the way. First thing, the three flags that I had uh, um, for, for donations, for people to win, have been all won. Okay? Plus even the next one has already been won. Basically, uh, as I said, we had... Um, <clears throat> we had we had uh, Andy from Los Angeles. <sighs> what am I talking about? Uh, I got confused. Andrew from Atlanta won one flag. Okay, and uh, our good friend Jack from Brooklyn won another flag, and Rob, a new player in this, won the third flag. Okay, so he's really excited. Uh, Rob E, you rock and congratulations. And Andy from New York and Connecticut has already pre-won whatever flag I try to get out of Hebron, okay? <laughs> he said, forget the Jerusalem flag, I want a Hebron flag. And I, and, I, and I get that. So the flags have been won, but you know what? I am now on a uh, crusade. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> yeah, to get more uh, flags. That word crusade is so funny when used in Jewish terms. Um, uh, to get more flags. So I'm very excited about that. That's, that's, uh, that's issue number one. And of course... Uh, if you want to be part of that, that story and help donate, help the process happen, uh, go to com. I also uh, want to thank the Michel family, Jeanette and Gabrielle, who uh, help uh, make the show happen also. Um, and uh, they, together with Sarah Z, are really the folks that sponsor uh, somebody that I don't mention enough on the show, which is Moshe Herman, who is the... Uh, content manager of the show and make sure it gets out to all the places from JewishPress.com to YUTorah and gets, gets your voice on to Torah. You are on Torah. Do you know that? And, and many other good places. And so, and so Moshe Herman is part of the staff and to make uh, uh, his job happen there are good friends around the world from Switzerland uh, or from Brooklyn and in many other places help make it happen. Uh, also Dan AP uh, so a lot of good folks are making it happen, so I want to thank you so much. Last week on the show, uh, and, and I want to get to one topic, and then we'll get to the tour portion. Last week on the show, I did uh, what happened really was an impromptu interview. Uh, an old friend of mine from uh, from the college days, Mordechai Levavitz, who was back then a gay rights activist who has become a much more prolific gay rights activist uh, and, and has started his own organization called uh, Jewish queer youth uh, was on the show I bumped into him uh, on a train coming back from where was it coming from I was coming oh right I was coming back from Los Angeles he was coming back from Israel having marched in the Tel Aviv Gay Pride Parade and he was going from parade to parade coming to the United States to, to the Northeast to march in the Israel Day Parade and all these were sponsored you know big big uh, processions and um I thought to myself, here's an opportunity to talk to talk with somebody on a very intense issue, a cutting edge issue, which a lot of people don't have answers for and certainly don't want to talk about. In fact, I got a lot of pushback on the last interview. Um, people asked me a lot, first thing, what I thought because I let him speak more and I didn't kind of get into his face and challenge him. I let him speak more, that was one. And two, people said to me, why did you even talk about this topic? Why do you give these folks a platform at all? Mm. You know, you're a, you're a, you're a religious, uh, a, a values-driven show, Land of Israel show. Why talk about these things, which the Bible clearly says is not all right? Um, and, and why do you give them what they want, which is more of a platform? Uh, and my answer has been, this is a huge issue, folks. We got we to gotta know the, the we got to understand its internal rationales, reasonings. We got to know talking points. We got to understand we're going to have certain empathies. And certain pushbacks, but you're only going to do that if you engage and you know what's going on. If you're not engaging this issue, the other side is certainly engaging and they're engaging our youth. If you can't talk about this, if you can't actually come up with a, a, if you think you could just bury this thing, if you can put it back in the closet, you think, uh, it's not going to happen.
1: You know, I heard uh, what to me was a somewhat disturbing story relative, uh, it's relevant to what you're saying, at the Shabbos table when I was in L.A. A young teacher in one of the schools there said that his experience, his students are getting their sense of right and wrong more from the street, as he called it, than from the Torah. So the, the general attitude of religious youth, I'm talking about normative religious youth, at least that he was learning with, was that uh, you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with homosexuality. How could the Torah... Be so insensitive. The,
0: the Torah is on the defensive.
1: Yes, it's not just on the defensive. It's simply wrong, <laughs> and and no, I'm I'm i being right. serious. It's simply yep. wrong, and these kids are left with um a, a vague or sometimes acute unease because of course the, the Torah has presented them as one singular divine package. So I don't know how many of them have taken the next step in saying, well, if the Torah is wrong about this, then what else is it wrong about? You know, if but if you look at an a inevitable and logical chipped,
0: step, if it's chipped. You may not come to a, or, or look at some kind of gift or something that's chipped. You may not come to that logical step, but already it is chipped in your mind. Yes. I, you, you've, you've, you've taken away the wholeness of it. We know our Torah, if you erase one verse, one letter, the whole it's thing is pasul. It's, it's so, so on that what's level... pasul, by the way, in English?
1: Um, invalidated. Invalidated. So on, on that level, um, I absolutely agree with you that we need to learn to speak intelligently, not just to our children, but to the world. Um, On the other level, I also agree, I mean, it's noteworthy to me that your friend was marching in the gay rights parade or gay pride parade in Tel Aviv and then coming to march in the Israel pride parade in New York City is that the central issue there is one of identity, right? That he has found a way to hold within himself two facets of identity, which for most of history were not so reconciled, right? So this is critical because in our day, as far as I can tell, the most important issue is actually uniting the Jewish people. And that, uniting has never happened through agreement and sort of a homogenous thought. I mean, Jews, right, it's a, or tribal people in our origins. But finding ways to keep a conversation in, in which there, like you said, is a, is a uh, degree of respect, empathy, a degree of disagreement. And I find it very disturbing that people are saying to you, we can't talk about this. I hear that from both the right and the left in different ways. And I feel that there's almost nothing to be gained by the rejection of a discussion maybe maybe in theory if nobody else were discussing it we could say well let's just leave this untouched but it is a central you don't you don't hear you
0: don't hear the claim which I, i i i definitely i personally do understand that they're saying look these folks are trying very hard to be accepted be heard and propagate their narrative and their normalcy, and that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what what they want to achieve from you. They want it in on to Israel. Day parade, and they want it in on the Yishai Fleischer show. Uh,
1: I hear that. I think of it in certain ways. And they ways. want to
0: spread their their their. They want to spread empathy to their cause. And what these people are saying is, I don't have empathy. I don't want to have empathy. I'm not sure that the Torah wants me to have empathy in that sense. And so, therefore, by keeping it on, you know, lit on it and keeping it out, at least we don't have to tackle the moral questions so much. But I don't, you know,
1: but I won't give them my backing. Well, first of all, the Torah wants you to have empathy to all human beings and certainly to all Jews. Whether you have to have empathy to their worldview or their way of life is a different question, right? But I, I think of it in many ways the, in, similar to how I think of the of, uh, question of intermarriage. Um, what do I mean? Is that it, I think it used to be, and in many mind in many people's minds still is, a act of a legitimization for a religious Jew to go to or congratulate or even uh, you know, uh register in a certain way on a social level intermarriage. In the Orthodox world struggles with this, but on on some level what I've come around to I'm not making this as a halakhic statement, I'm just speaking experientially, is that they if you are going to be the only person that is able to maintain a relationship between, say, your brother or you know, a close friend and Am Yisrael, and by telling this person who otherwise thought that you love them, I'm sorry, I cannot join in what you perceive to be the happiest day of your life, you're going to simply cut yourself off, then what have you gained? They don't need your legitimacy anymore. Right? Like the, the, the world which intermarries is not looking to Orthodox Judaism for approval.
0: I think I think what you're saying is very meaningful and certainly I know that there's been a tremendous change in Judaism in that if you're like son God forbid or daughter or something somebody, you know somebody we, intermarried, we don't do what we used to do which is like say Kaddish for them and cut them off that is like that is no longer done no longer done I think there is a, I will give you a little bit, bit of pushback on that because I don't think it's the same only in that there is no intermarriage parade, okay? There's not a,
1: a, a... There doesn't need to be one. There doesn't need to be one. They, they, they're not right. fighting for normalcy. That's my point. Right. Right? There doesn't need to be... An, in America today, who needs an intermarriage parade? So that, that is precisely my point, is that the you, if you believe you can stop the world from accepting homosexuality as a as a normative and morally acceptable way of life, then I can understand... Perhaps why you would take a rejectionist stance, although even then, by the way, I would say classic you're going to win more flies with honey than vinegar. Right. So. So I don't understand why like a a negativity towards it would be the best tool. But I don't know that it can be. And furthermore, I think the most important thing is if we are going to attempt to speak for the Torah, we must be able to speak with a clarity, which is free from hate and free from fear.
0: Right, and 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 also deal with the issues of our day. Yes, and not like become Adam like as a reality, like religio. Uh, what do
1: you, what do you like? like turtles, mental ghetto. Right, like a little turtle, it's a like, mental ghetto. And listen, right. there's power. And mental to ghetto. That. Yeah,
0: the mental ghetto is okay, but but these guys are infiltrating the ghetto. And if you're not, if you're not, if you're not able to, we need to come up with answers. I think your yeah. first story, I think, was the most instructive, which is like kids are are are. Because the, the moral argument is so strong from the other side. If you're not making a counter argument or explaining or whatever it is and you're not dealing with it, you basically moral?
1: ceded morality to the the, the the moral argument is a very deep challenge, which is on some level, Western individualism has reached its realization in the, the, uh, the gay and transgender community which is someone saying my inner sense of self, whether it's grounded in genetics, whether it's grounded in choice, whether it's grounded in identity, is beyond me in this discussion right now. But my inner sense of self trumps any definitions which the external society, religion, God herself are going to put on me. And the kids that are growing up, not just in America, I imagine it's as true here as well, are growing up in a society which says, yes, you are an individual first and foremost primarily. So all those other impositions which come through the lens of their teacher's opinions or their parents' opinions or et cetera, um, are always going to be seen as secondary.
0: I want to tell you that uh, not in a long time have, I, have, have has, has a segment on my show engendered such serious emails. You know, not like, great show. Serious, serious emails. People sat down and cranked. And the first one I want to read to you is from Cindy. She says, hi, Ishai. Listen to your show on my morning run. I'm happy for you that you're running. I appreciate your courage to discuss the homosexual issue with your friend on the program. Definitely one of those topics that brings out strong emotions on both sides. While there's, quote, nothing new under the sun, end quote, I find it puzzling why homosexuality, transgender identity has become so prominent, not only in America, but pretty much worldwide. That's always one of my first thoughts. With the strong pressure to accept these lifestyles being rammed down our throats, it is difficult not to feel the urge to press back. How to respond? Some sins in the Bible are much easier to agree on, regardless of whether or not you give uh, God the time of day, murder, stealing, false witness. But these are even becoming muddied as we see a world struggle with calling terrorism what it is, murder. Uh, So is that somehow related here? And she goes on to basically ask the question You see,
1: I just addressed directly her question, which is that... What's happening is that this is the logical end consequence of Western individualism. My inner sense trumps my biology. There is no external frame, legal, social, moral, theological, that you can use to force me to be other than what I perceive myself to be. Mm-hmm. And she's absolutely correct, then, that the inner conviction shown by this young man who murdered 50 people in a, in a club in Orlando is his inner conviction, right? At what level can I sit as judge upon that? And I know that might make people uncomfortable to draw a parallel there, but there is a continuum. That's why the, the the challenge, the struggle that I, educationally, that I see with youth is actually not around homosexuality. It's not the issue. The issue is whether there are legitimate frames within which individuals subsume their individuality into some whole. And if there is if such a posture is legitimate, then we have to find out, what are they? Right? Another way of saying this is, is there anything wiser than me? Right? And if the answer to that is no, then then Do I trust the a past? Real Do I trust something bigger than me? If, the, if,
0: if our leaders are corrupt, then maybe their models are corrupt. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 and just, just, mm-hmm. just yesterday's a good friend of mine, my good buddy Alex, who I sat with, had coffee in Jerusalem. By the way, the greatest thing in the world, having coffee in Jerusalem... He said to me that there's a medrash that says, there's a a Jewish lore that says that what the snake said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is he said, of course God doesn't want you to eat from the apple. He ate from himself. He wants power for himself. It's the tree that gave him the power. God is just like you and he wants to keep you out. That's right. And if you think about what that means is that A, he's calling God a liar, but he's also saying like the whole world's a jip.
1: And it, it, you, reduce, you can't trust it. And you reduce God, not just to the limits of man, but to the, the cheap, narrow, you know, uh, grasping, small-minded side of man. <laughs> Amazing. You know, and hey, right, he's not like a great, noble, wise man. Right.
0: He's no, like he's, he's like a jerk. He and, just wants to
1: keep you out. And here's the kicker, since most of us are all too familiar with that side of ourselves. <laughs> and many of us are more familiar with that side of ourselves than the great wise man side of ourselves. Then it's fairly easy to believe. Right. Right? And and so there's a tremendous challenge and demand, right? This language of chiyuv, right? Obligation that is the core of what the Torah is, right? The mitzvot are not suggestions. They're not I mean, They are also God's vision of a better world, but the word means commandment. And the idea that the Torah could assert to us specifics in behavior and thought is premised in the notion that, yes, there is wisdom greater than us. There's a G-D. Right. (laughs) And if that word makes a person uncomfortable, we can come up with a different one because Lord knows, haha, the Torah uses every possible word it can, knowing very well that as soon as you put a name on God, then just like limiting God in that cheap venal fashion so you're also limiting god in your conception and there's
0: another measure that says that that god says um i don't even mind if they leave me as long as they don't leave my torah
1: he says it because he knows their torah will bring him back to him right right real wisdom causes growth opens horizons and brings life and and i feel like it's always served by conversation
0: let me read to you one more from Brian Hennessy. Writes me an email. He says, "Hello Yeshai, very much you enjoyed your discussion with your loquacious friend about the pro-gay pride parade and the Jewish LGBTQ in in the uh, in the last show when I talked about this. I said this this sounds like a the the list of trains at, at Times Square. The LGBTQ transfer available." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Transfer available That is all too true uh, And the Jewish um, And this movement In general I thought you did a good job Of graciously parrying His many philosophical Justifications For celebrating A gay Jewish identity Your show also very much Was timely for me Listen to this uh-huh. Because this issue Is impacting Christians Like myself Who strongly support Israel's Zionism And the Jewish people Worldwide I recently heard A podcast radio show Called True News In which the announcer Excercated Christian Zionism In light of the pride parades, he accused us Christians of blindly ignoring the pervasive sinful condition of Israel and misleading other Christians to think Israel is a holy land, a place where Israelis just sit around and read Torah and light Sabbath candles. He said it really should be called the unholy land. It was clear that the man held uh, to a flawed theology that views the church as a replacement for Jewish Israel, but his accusations did cause me some angst. How do we explain this ungodly behavior in Israel? The scriptures are quite clear, and I believe we are on the same page here concerning God's view of homosexual transgender activity. On top of this, uh, it is our strong belief that God is restoring Israel at this time. If God is indeed for the nation, how could he allow such government-promoted vileness to take hold? And how can we convince other Christians to stand with Israel? Sure, Orthodox Jews like yourself may oppose this, but a recent poll indicates that seventy-eight percent of Israelis agree with some form of same-sex marriage. Right? True. Wow. Now, do you do you do you hear what he's saying? He's like, look, you you. I listen to the Yishei Fleischer show with Rabbi Mike. I listen to Spiritual Cafe. You guys are making it sound like
1: it's a holy know, land. It's
0: a. <laughs> but we know that they have you know the Middle East's biggest gay pride parade, and and in fact, in fact, there's an element of it which is. Which is quite
1: anti-Torah. Well, two things come to my
0: mind, and then and then you hear, of course, that this his this Christian this Christian perspective is is echoed in an ultra Orthodox perspective, saying, you see, uh, the, the state is not holy, absolutely, and absolutely. this business is unholy. It ain't no Messiah. This is the work of the devil."
1: Yes, so so two two things come to my mind. One, the first is Aren't historic. these great emails by the way They're unbelievable. That's right? Somebody the, really spent some time sp- on
0: that I, I, read you a, I read you about a quarter of the email It yeah. keeps going and going I'm just I'm just. Both of these emails You see how seriously People took this issue Which by the way Gave me already satisfaction For I sure. was satisfied that Exactly like we talked about In the beginning Just to open it up And by the way We are listening You are listening And I. We're, we're at Beit Mijar Sulam Yaakov uh, Sulam Rabbi Mike Foyer uh, uh, Educational director here At Sulam Yakov, The heart of Jerusalem uh, and we are on Spiritual Cafe on the Ishai Fleischer Show as part of the Land of Israel Network. Rabbi
1: Mike, go ahead. So the historical perspective, I mean, it's a strong parallel in my mind how rampant idolatry was here during the First Temple. Meaning there, there is a, a certain aspect of the Holy Land, which is a very Christian term in and of itself, which I don't actually love all that much. And Eretz- it's um, a Kodesh. You know, I mean, the kedusha, and that's its own discussion, which maybe we could have another time. Um, but the, this idea of the, of the Holy Land is is a is a place of tremendous upwelling. What was the word? Upwelling, right? You know what the the North Atlantic Conveyor is, right? This giant current that circulates the water through the North Atlantic. Right? There's a place in which right, the water comes up from below, and it's oxygen-saturated, and it causes tremendous life. Right? The, the krill blossom, and the whales come, and the otters, and the fish, and all that stuff. So in many ways, Aaron Israel is that. Right? There's just life upwelling here. A life so, force. A energy. life force, and, right. and, and it, it once had its battle between idolatry and the service of God right and and now that i'm making a one to one comparison between idolatry and homosexuality don't misunderstand me here my point is is that the the assumption that he has that what the holy land is is this place of of holiness i'm not necessarily buying it it's a, it's a place of upwelling and tremendous power. So it's not surprising to me that what is one I, of I the most... I think what you're saying, if, if, if I may translate a little bit, I, I think yeah? what you're
0: saying is, sure, it is a place. I don't want people to misunderstand because I know what you mean. It's a place of great holiness, no doubt about it, but, that, but it really comes from the fact that God is flowing life into yes. this place and therefore also unholiness.
1: Yes, there you go. That's what I'm after, is that it really depends on the nature of the people who are there to receive it. So there small. Well, in, in a sense, small. the
0: unholiness is a sign of the holiness.
1: Yes, there's never anything small. You put Am Yisrael into Israel into right. Eretz Israel. We're never going to do anything small, right? right? That's what the Torah says in the curses that that we read. That you know, when the nations have possession of the land, it's going to be kind of a barren wasteland, right? Barren and, wasteland. That, and that's and that's good news for you Jews because you all know that like when you come back in 1948 and the place is a barren wasteland, it's just going to start to grow to the point where we export tomatoes to Russia, you know, which is absurd, right? And and that. Level, it, it's a it's indicative of who are the people who have arrived back here, and that's the second piece, is that like, who came back to this land, who built this medina, this this state. These are the people who were able to break the hold of the past upon them, and I'm not saying that necessarily as a good thing, but one of the great levers through which they were able to break the hold of the past is Western individualism, this belief that they themselves can be who they define themselves as, and today's world. The issues of the gay and transgender community are the one of the primary articulations of Western individualism. Here you are in this country. Have you met any individuals since you've been here? Sure. But it's a crazy mix, isn't it? Because you scratch an Israeli and you get to the collective pretty quickly. Although, you know... By generations that's not always so true But you look at the amount of volunteerism The, the level of giving you know, the, the sense that someone's going to tell you what your kid should wear When they see you in the supermarket right? there's, there's a collective underneath there And so I think that it's not at all a surprise That a lot of the Israelis And I've seen those polls What are they really saying? By the way when they say 78% of Israelis Would you know, support uh, gay marriage they're, wh- What they're saying is Why is that my business? Right this because we also know that the other side of that Is that Israel is a very
0: family oriented place and, in, and even in secular Tel Aviv There's a very high level of, of, of marriage And having children And it's actually in some Multiple ways Multiple children Right And it's actually a relatively conservative society Ironically Even Tel Aviv Is or I don't know if that term is correct conservative But the, the, the bottom line is A, a family society a Very much You know About monogamy
1: And, 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 and It's and, a grounded conservatism And an intellectual liberalism Mm-hmm so, you know, you want to ask me what other people should be able to do? The answer that the Jews have garnered from history is, I don't really want to tell you what to do. And this is, by the way, painful, but I think uh, a point of wisdom that the Torah world should try to, try to um, absorb is that the idea that a rabbi or a religious Jew can be an authority figure in someone else's life is fading, right? The idea that we can be teachers, right. offer wisdom... Be examples. is always <laughs> present. That's
0: interesting to say that because I was uh, sitting in in a reform temple in Los Angeles, California,
1: and they said to me something which many religious Jews in America would tell you you're not allowed to do. Right.
0: No, I I, I certainly sat in, and uh, I met the reform rabbis, and I called them rabbi, and and I shook hands, and I just I'm I'm past that you, exactly. On, what you
1: you honored the people right. in their place. That's
0: exactly it. That's exactly it. And you know what they said to me? Interestingly enough, they said we are trying no longer to really uh, uh, espouse certain ideologies or political philosophies or anything like that. We're more trying to be an intellectual place where you can hear both sides of an argument and people can kind of decide for themselves. We're trying to bring top-level speakers to 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 hear both sides and then let people come out for themselves because people don't kind of want to hear our line anymore. Right. So that ties in. Let me just pause for a second here, Rabbi Mike, uh, and just also uh, say two more things. First thing, a shout-out to a mutual friend of ours, Zev, who is a religious listener to the show.
1: And a religious man as well. That's
0: right. Uh, a, a great man and a good friend and uh, and really doesn't miss the show. Zev, God bless you and your family. Thank you so much for being there for us. Amen. And, um, and I also want to say hi to uh, Uri Karzen, who is the Director General of uh, the Hebron community, Hebron, which is where I work. And this show is also part of spreading the fame and name uh, of the people buried in Hebron, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah. This is an international heritage site. No matter who you are, if you are connected to monotheism, to the Bible, to Judaism, to Israel. To the human story. To the human story. Th- these are, these are the, the stars of humanity. So come visit. There's a, a bus multiple times a day. We have tours to Hebron once or twice a week, depending on the season. Uh, check out uh, our website, hebron.com and also hebronfund.org for the tours in English, and, and be part of the story, the great story that starts uh, with the people buried in Hebron. So that's a little thing I want to talk about. Now I think it's time for us to uh, take a sharp turn for a second and talk about the tour portion itself for a few minutes. Um, and it's, it's a, it is a tumultuous one indeed. It's called Bahalotcha. It talks about, uh, at first it starts out with kind of the candles of, of the menorah, harkening back a little bit to the book of Leviticus. Uh, but then then we get a dichotomy. On the one hand, we learn about the people of Pesach Sheni, the ones who missed out on uh, the Passover opportunity because they had, were defiled at the time, uh, ritually impure at the time because they were probably dealing with a dead body or something. They didn't have to give the, the sacrifice of the Passover, which really connects you to the nation. But that year they, they had a pass but they basically said listen Moses we don't want to pass we want some way back in we want to take part in it a lot of, and we've talked about this when when it actually happened a lot of times people understand pesach Shani to be uh about about second chances but i think it's really much more about the yearning for more it's not so much about a second chance it's much more about calling to god and saying hey i want to be closer to you and and i think that pesach sheni are the kind of people that Yearn for a greater connectivity to God if it's growing in Torah, if it's taking upon another mitzvah, if it's moving to the land of Israel or connecting to the land of Israel, or I don't know what, taking steps to connect. And that's exactly what Pesach Shani is about. So these people use their mouth in a request and prayer form, talk to the great Sadiq, the righteous man Moses, reached out to God, went through the channels, and got back new info, precious, precious dialogue from God in order to 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 live their lives more fully and richly and to, to honor God and, and, and to please Him. And this stands in stark contrast to the second part of this Torah portion, which has two incidents of negative speech. One being uh, the complainers. And, and, and I'm talking about the kind of complaining, and it, ter- it turns out Rav Arush uh, of Breslov... Pointed out that really this complaining Is a general like When God really gets angry isn't complaining And you know that as a parent It's one thing when your kid Stubs a toe and they're crying and all that That's totally understandable They're hungry whatever They're tired But when you give a whole day to a kid A full day that you took him out And you drove You took a day off of work You're driving And then at the end of the day The kid didn't get the extra ice cream And they're crying on you You're like hey Hold on okay I gave you this 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 Now you're complaining There's something about that It just breaks you and, and that's one incident of Lashon Hara, and this was in the case where they uh, 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 complained about not having meat, and they would have found any other excuse Rashi talks about to complain. God gives them the quail. Uh, a lot of people die in that incident. And also there's the very challenging incident of Miriam, the great prophetess and leader, one of the great leaders of the Jewish people, who spoke some, somehow, spoke in some way that was improper towards her brother Moses, maybe criticizing him lightly, um, and God getting quite angry at her and punishing her in a very public fashion. Uh, She becomes leprous for seven days and is left outside of the camp until she is healed from that, and it's because she somehow misspoke about uh, the greatest leader of the Jewish people. So I think you have here uh, the, the dichotomy of speaking with love and passion and yearning and wanting to grow with God and then challenging God, not being thankful, complaining or speaking somehow poorly of of Jewish leaders, uh, even if it comes from a good, you know, a a wanting to critique in a good way, somehow uh, it it went very, very badly. So what do you think about
1: that? (sighs) In between that dichotomy lies the great discontinuity, right? The way you describe this, it's almost two ways of being. And, and that Pesach Sheni yearning for more and closeness, is, is oriented toward coming to the land of Israel. I mean, that's what happens at the end of that whole process. It's like, three days, right? And you know, let's, let's do it. And on the other side of that, that dichotomy lies um, not just the complaint and the punishment of Miriam, but soon to follow the sin of the spies and the, the decree of wandering in the desert. Uh, the actually exact opposite of leaving Egypt. And what lies between them is this great discontinuity. You know what a discontinuity is? See, when I say that, I'm thinking of my geology education. It's an amazing thing that, you know, sometimes we look at the hills. Or if you look at a, a clean road cut, you know, where a highway goes through, it can be really obvious. And what you're looking at is all one thing. It's a big mountain, right? You figure it all just happened together, right? But part of the art form of geology is the ability to identify discontinuity. Where two layers are actually touching each other but something's missing in between. They don't actually belong. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Not yet. Ah, so if you go all the way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, that red sandstone layer which you picture in your mind, ceases. And you get to what's known as the Great Discontinuity, where literally tens of millions of years have been scrubbed away by time. And yet, if you look at it, it all looks like one thing. That's what's happening in the Torah. It looks like we came out of Egypt. Everything was going well. And then suddenly we started to complain and it all fell apart But in between, right, uh, is the upside down world And you know what I'm referring to here in the text Are these two letters nun These two um, brackets That show us that really what looks like one book of the Torah Has actually been broken into three And what lies between them, I think you so beautifully pointed out Is that dichotomy between the ability to use not just our mouth But our, our human capacity of speech Of how we understand our experience And, and bring it into reality through expression Either to create the world in which we want to live, to head to Eretz Israel, to take that Torah that we came out of Egypt to receive and plant it in the soil where it'll flourish, or to just destroy, to disparage, to undermine, right? And um, that's what this whole parsha is about: is that seemingly, well, this is all one piece, right? Right? We just came out and we blew it, and and uh, and, uh, and 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 then we wandered. Question is, what what lies in between? What's missing there? You have choice in your directions. Uh, you, you are given choice, and
0: and you, what you're saying is that discontinuity is. You could have gone one way, chose another way. It was your choice, but it could have been there was the the, the trajectory was going in a different way.
1: So what you're saying is the discontinuity what lies in between is you as a real human being. Right. That this is not a story. Right. This is not some fairy tale that I'm telling my kids when they go to bed so they have some concept of morality this is reality unfolding and if reality is actually unfolding and it's not just God playing puppeteer and we're all little marionettes then what lies there in between these two paths is you as a real person with real choice and that section that you talked
0: about with the two upside down nuns the bracketed section that really could be referred to as the kuma section kuma shem ve'efut Ve'Cha, it's considered that it is the Torah that's being written it is the Torah that's being written about us it's, it's, it's a, it has not yet been fully written out or revealed, but it's there. And, and, and Unfolding as we live. Unfolding as we live. The Torah is therefore a very real document, a very right. real document. And
1: never ceases. You know, one of the things that drives me nuts about people mm-hmm. who learn Bible is, you know what the last word of the whole Bible is, the whole Tanakh? Uh,
0: uh, it's a good uh, quiz. It's like alu or something. You're it, close. Yeah. Bayal. Bayal, right. Right? And Anybody who wants to go up to the to, to the the Israel, let him go up. Uh, right,
1: I'm, I'm 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 giving you permission to go. Like it's almost in the command form. That, let him go up.
0: Is that Cyrus or it's Cyrus? Right. Yes,
1: it's Cyrus speaking in his declaration. Right, it's, it happens to be planted there at the end of the book of Chronicles. But the, our tradition teaches us that it was Ezra that wrote the book of Chronicles. In addition to his book, and so you know you know what's so important about that word is people read that word It's the last word in the Bible, right? That's, that's You had the last word on that one, right? right. <laughs> but what they don't understand is that Ezra, when he wrote Chronicles, was not interested in the past. Right. He was rebuilding his people in Eretz Israel in order to bring them to the future. So that wasn't the last word of the Bible. It was the first word of life, <laughs> right? In the same way, that's how this discontinuity is meant to function here. Are you reading somebody else's story? Because if you are, you're just going to start to complain. Because the reality is it'll always be second best. Nobody wants to live inside somebody else's story, right? Right. But if you're reading your story, well, then it could go wherever you want. And what could be a greater cause of joy and empowerment, Kuma, of standing up to a full stature and and taking that Torah that you came out of the the awful place in order to receive and plant it in the soil where it will really grow. All right, folks,
0: that was... Uh uh, our conversation here at Beit Mirash Shulam Yaakov by Mike Ford thank you we'll take, that, we'll take that we'll take the story not as somebody else's story but our story uh, and uh, Vaya we gotta keep going up certainly go up to the land of Israel but go up in every single way uh, to serve God to want to grow and, and, to, and to entangle ourselves with the story of the Torah and uh, we're doing that here in Yerushalayim, 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 it is a hot day, but the fans in a Sephardi fashion are blowing uh, in Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. I see the, the little grapes. I look out the window and I see these mini uh, grapes who will come to uh, uh, a maturity. Fuishing. Right, literally fruition. They will be fruitful uh, in, in just about a month uh, at, a, at around Tisha B'Av and Tubav. They're coming out. I see the little beautiful grapes. And they remind me uh, that we are planted in our soil here in the land of Israel. And we're raising our children here as well. Wherever you are, I want you to stay connected to the story. Be strong. Stay connected. I want to thank the good folks at Hebron, hebron.com. I want to thank uh, our network, thelandofisrael.com. And I want to thank you wherever you are out there. I want to thank you, Rabbi Mike. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bless you. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. So don't touch that dial. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that talk with Rabbi Mike Foyer on Spiritual Café Eshai Fleischer Show. And now let's go to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I gave a talk called If Two-State is Dead. If Two-State is Dead... And this is uh, this is a, a much longer. It was an hour and a half talk, but you're going to hear a half an hour of it. I want to hear what you think. Write me an email, Yeshai at thelandofisrael dot com. Yeshai at thelandofisrael dot And I would love to come to your community and give a talk like this. Here's Scottsdale, Arizona, is Two state Day. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here today with you. <laughs> I actually, have, I, I didn't mean to do that. I've always uh, wanted to be in Phoenix. I've always, always wanted to visit Phoenix. Uh, I like desert towns. It's really pretty here. It's actually been more beautiful than I expected. Um, what makes life in Phoenix possible? Air conditioning. That's right. With, without without that air conditioning, it, it wouldn't work. And and uh, the same thing in the Middle East is is faith. And without a little bit of faith and good things and. Uh, that things are going to work out, uh, that, that God's got kind of our back, not just our back, but the Middle East back in general. Uh, if, you didn't, if you don't have that, it's not going to work out at all. And that's what Ben Gurion said. He said that if you don't have faith, you're not a realist uh, in the Middle East. So we'll, we're going to talk about things today that are not faith-based, I think, but we got to have a little bit of faith that things are going to, that we have some, there's positive lights at the end of the tunnel. Uh, thank you very much, Beit Tfilah, Rabbi Elush. It's nice to meet you. And thank you very much, uh, Rabbi Yanklowitz, Rabbi Shmuley, Rav Shmuley, and people said to me, you're speaking at Rav Shmuley's? Is that right? I mean, Rav Shmuley is he's not exactly politically aligned with you. And uh, I said, you know, I have spoken at Rav Shmuley's before, and we, we have a great time because Rav Shmuley is a, a real intellectual who's, who's, who's open-minded, uh, and that's exactly what I'm about also. You don't have to agree. And in fact, in fact before I speak at any, any uh, uh, congregation, any place, I speak to, with a lot of people on, the, uh, on a different political side than me, on the left, and I oft- often say to them, um, you don't have to agree with me at all. I'm not going to preach at you, teach at you, uh, convince you of anything. I'm not, to, I'm not trying to get you to agree with me at all. But you've heard a lot about the settlers, right? You heard about the settlers, they're on TV all the time, they're bad, they're burly, they're gun-toting and all that, and here's your chance to actually meet a settler and hear our narrative. That's, that's a good opportunity for you and, and you could actually get a chance to, to see it for yourself and discuss it for yourself. So I don't know what your opinions are, this is a big room, a lot of different people, uh, but I don't, I don't take anything for granted. But the bottom line is, is that t- tonight I'm going to try to share with you the way I see the world and maybe I'm representative of some people in, my, in our communities um, and we'll try to understand how we see the, the way forward. Um, so far? Yeah? You with me? Okay, good. Okay. Uh, the topic today really is alternative to the two-state solution. But who needs an alternative to the two-state solution? Maybe the two-state solution is the only way to move forward. That's what they tell us all the time. It's the only way to move forward, right? By the way, non Jews in this room No? Really? Israelis? Former Israelis? Yeah? Okay, great. I just want to know what's going on. Uh, A lot of times we, uh, we get told that it's the only way forward. That's the only way forward. And yet, amazingly, this only way forward has been tried and tested so many times and has failed every single time. People right now in the world, the world media wants to say that Israel is moving towards a fascistic right. Right? We've heard this. It's like fascism taking over Israel. Israel's fanatically going right wing and all this kind of stuff. The truth is is that Israel is moving towards a more nationalistic approach right now. A more nationalistic approach, and that is because uh, that might be termed more right wing. And the reason that Israel is moving more right wing is not because people like me have been so successful in educating everybody to the religious uh, uh, imperative of holding on to the land of Israel. No, we have not been that successful. Okay? We have not been that successful. What has been successful is the recurring failure of efforts for land giveaway. That has been successful to, be, to prove to the average, traditional, secular, regular Israeli that the idea of land for peace, giving away chunks of the land to an, uh, another sovereign is not the way to move forward. That has been a proven failure and in my mind also a certain kind of success. Let's go back a step. Zionism is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. We come back to the land of Israel. We are the people who are ethnically cleansed from our land 2,000 years ago. We come back. We're reestablishing Jewish presence uh, in in the Holy Land, whatever you want to call it. Um, And it succeeds. It succeeds very much. Um, Surprisingly succeeds. And Israel, uh, when is Israel really born? Is Israel really born in the 1947-48 Partition Plan? No, Israel was born way before that. Really, it starts really happening, really modern-day Israel can be traced back to the Spanish Inquisition. 1492, Jews are kicked out of Spain. Imagine if Jews were kicked out from, from America. That's what the Spanish Inquisition was like. Jewry, Diaspora Jewry was destroyed in Spain, and it started moving on an axis through southern Europe and Europe, moving... Eastward and North Africa. And in various ways, the Jewish people come back to the land of Israel. In my, the city that I work for, Hebron, in the 1550s is when Jewish, Spanish Jews come back to Hebron. It takes them 60 years to kind of make it. And they reestablish Jewish community there, including building the great Avraham Avinu synagogue in Hebron. And that's really the beginning of Zionism. Remember the Arizal? Remember the famous Kabbalists in, in, in Sfat? You've heard of him? The Ari. The of Isaac Luria, very famous Kabbalist, the Kabbalist of our you know of our era, and he is living in in, in Tzfat, What what year? Around 1550, around 1550. And at the very same time, the, the Jewish codex of law is written, the Mechaber, uh, uh, the, of the Shulchan Aruch. Rav Yosef Karo is, is living in Svat also, and they're really pinging out a new message. Israel's the new center. Come to Israel. And after that, the Baal Shem Tov and the Grah and the Orchaim Kadosh are going to... Okay, they're going to... That's right. They're going to bring Jewish people to the land of Israel. And that's, that's absolutely correct. They're going to bring people to the land of Israel. And, and we're all going to start to influx. Then later, secular Zionism is going to come up with its version. It's going to bring people from, from Russia. In the 1880s already. 1880s, the Russian secular Jews are moving. The Bilu is 1882, I think. Huh? Shrumpeldor, 1897, is already the first Zionist Congress. So 1948 is already way after Isra- the Israeli impulse has been established. And in 1947, uh, no, one, one, step for, one step back, the Turks are kicked out by the British, and the British are given a mandate to, to do what? To establish a Jewish state, right? That's not really true. They're also given a, a mandate to establish Iraq and later Jordan. And and France is going to get Syria and Lebanon. So at that time, there was going to be four Arab states established alongside a little Jewish state. Remember that. Four Arab states were going to be born at the same time that a Jewish state was going to be born. But the British, is there any British people in the room? Uh, That's good, because I'll tell you the truth. The British, in my mind, have a very special place in hell. And I'll tell you why. Because Nazis, Nazis, huh? I'm, just, I'm just, as we say in, in British, I'm taking the piss, okay? I'm just uh, making a joke here. And and the reason is, is that the, the the Nazis, you know they're Nazis, they hate Jews, okay. And they do what they do. But the British were given an opportunity to build the Jewish state, which they took upon themselves with, 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 with Zionistic fervor. They were calling it restorationism at the time. But they turned their back on the Jews, and they basically empower elements that want to destroy the Jews, including evil Nazis like Haj Amin al-Husseini. Haj Amin al-Husseini was a Nazi. Not every Arab at that time thought like Haj Amin al-Husseini. There were many non-jihadistic voices. One such non-jihadistic voice was Amir Faisal, who met Chaim Weizmann at the 1919 Peace Conference. We have the letters. Look it up on Wikipedia. Please look it up on Wikipedia. The letters exchanged between Chaim Weizmann and Amir Faisal. They're beautiful. They're beautiful letters and what they say is it's so like the old Arab way this honor this this this, this like honor uh, this honor bound bedouin from the desert speaking and he says my brother we will recognize you Jews as building a Jewish state we will help you if you help us and we will rise up together Semitic peoples in this one land in this one area how beautiful what a beautiful narrative Four Arab countries, one Jewish country, we'll rise up together. We're cousins. We're genetic cousins. We're linguistic cousins. We're even religious cousins. We can have a narrative that we understand each other. We're not foreigners. We're we Jewish people. We're not just white people coming from the Holocaust, from Europe. We're actually Semitic people. We're coming from Baghdad. We're coming from Yemen. But people like Haj al-Husseini, who were empowered by the British, have a completely different narrative. Their narrative is a hateful narrative. It seizes on some classic jihadistic uh, uh, tendencies within the Islamic world, and he basically is going to stir that up. Jews are taking over. Jews are pernicious. Jews want to take over the Temple Mount. Jews are bad, bad, bad. We have to fight with Jews. We have to kill Jews. Let's learn from the Nazis uh, who were uh, starting to, to take control, starting. In any case, a completely different atmosphere is created in the Middle East. In 1947, by the time it rolls around, the United Nations is going to pull away from the League of Nations' promises. The League of Nations said, we recognize the Jewish people's right, not give. Recognize our natural rights. Not give. Nobody was going to give us rights. They were going to recognize our rights. But the British are going to start forgetting those promises, and we're going to have to bully them out of the country. We terrorize the British to get out. Just like we fought with the Romans and the Greeks, just like we fought the Babylonians and lost. Just like we fought with all kinds of forces. That's right. We, we fight and we win and we fight and we lose. But we fight. And we, we beat the British. We kicked them out of there. We knew, we knew their weak points and we got them out of there. And we declared a state. Now, by that point, the British were pushing the new United Nations to come up with this new theory. Divide the tiny land that was supposed to be Israel's into two states. We said, we the Jewish people said... Okay. We said okay, but it was begrudging. It wasn't really that we really thought it was the right and just idea. We just said, okay, that's the UN today. We'll take it and we'll get the rest in war. That was what Ben Gurion, he thought, let's agree to it. The other parties didn't agree to it anyway. And the truth of the matter is is that the UN creation of Israel is a false narrative. The UN did not create Israel. Their ideas were probably illegal in the first place. We only agreed to it because our handle's behind their back. In any case, the Arabs didn't agree to it. It has zero teeth, zero part of the story. In the meantime, Israel, 1948, Israel, did Israel win or lose the 1948 war? <coughs> That's right. That no true questions here, folks. I'm, I'm making it easy for you. That's an easy one. All right, we win the 1948 and the Penns War, but did we really win it fully? Yes or no? We got our state, thank God, but we also lost what people then understood... And what people like myself still understand today is the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. And what, by the way, international law saw as Jewish, not by granting, but by recognizing that everything minimally west of the Jordan River, minimally west of the Jordan River, was to be a state of Israel. We lost Hebron. Hebron is where our mamas and papas are buried. We lost Kevrachel and Beit Lechem. We lost the Kotel and the Temple Mount. By the way, uh, uh, a little uh, uh, I want to just clear up a misnomer. The Kotel is not the holiest place of the Jewish people. Get this straight, folks. It never was. It was basically the Mamilla shopping plaza of 2,000 years ago. Okay? That's what it was. It was the area that you shopped in and hung out in before you went up to the holiest place, which was the Temple Mount. And we lost Beit El, Shiloh, Shechem. Beit El is the place where Jacob had his dream of the ladder, according to tradition. Shechem, where, where the tomb of Joseph is, we lost these places. To who? To, 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 uh, to the Palestinians? No. To a Jordanian? Did I ever tell you about how fake Jordan is in terms of a country? I don't have time to explain it. But it's the fakest country ever, OK? I don't, I'm not even going to get into it. It's just a long and, and totally created story, which will one day soon fall apart as the rest of the fake countries that were created by Europe. Okay, This country, which was British armed, British led, British trained, Took over our took over these ancestral places for 19 years under what I would call an occupation. That occupation was not recognized by the international community, except for two countries: England and, and Pakistan. Some people also say Iraq. Okay, so they, so they, they the, the, those three countries recognized them. Obviously, they were all British protectorates of different kinds. In any case, 1967 rolls around. In my friends, it's a simple question. In 1967, was it a in 1967, remember the Six Day War? I could see some people in this room may remember it. I don't know. I'm not saying anything, but maybe some people remember that war. Was that? And here's the big question: Was it liberation or occupation? Liberation or occupation? If 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 Israel if Israel was born in 1948 by the UN partition plan. 1 second if israel was born in 19 let's wait a little bit okay we'll, 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 okay if 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 israel was born in 19 born and conceived of in 1947 48 because we were just a post holocaust white people that were not from the area and it was born through the original uh, idea of a two state solution i.e. the partition plan then therefore Sir, so, and that's what I see in all the films right now that are coming out. All the films against Israel now are basically saying that we were born in 1948, and then we took over land that was not supposed to be ours. So therefore, uh, you know, therefore we are obviously in occupation. Or was it what we understood in 1967? What many many Israeli intellectuals, not all certainly, but Israeli intellectuals understood. Certainly, spiritual leaders, but I'm talking about even on the on the secular left, uh, understood that this was our ancestral homeland. And we have come back. And of course it also made strategic and defensive sense. But at the time, at the time the problem was is that we stuttered. We stuttered. We stuttered about it and we we didn't stutter about Jerusalem. We said Jerusalem, you know, we remembered Lashana Babirusalaim, Lashana Hazot Beirushalaim. Boom. We got it, we annexed it. But the rest of Judea and Samaria, we stuttered. Maybe we could give it back. Maybe we should in the next. There's a lot of Arabs there. And we stuttered. And the problem with stuttering is that it sends an ambivalent signal. It was an ambivalent signal. It doesn't just say it was an ambivalent signal. On the one hand, we knew it was an ancestral homeland. On the other hand, we didn't want all the Arabs there. And we also maybe thought that we would get peace at the time that was in vogue, that we would get peace through giving back. And that's eventually what happened with the Sinai, for example. 1967, and we didn't annex. And then there were some Jews who felt, wait a minute, this is our ancestral homeland, and started kind of pushing into Judea and Samaria to try to settle it. And with government support and government uh, encouragement, but also discouragement. It was always a game. It wasn't like a full on, here you go. It was always a game. It was always a stutter step, a dance. And it is exactly that way to this very day. In Hebron today, we have 85 Jewish families guarded by, I'm not going to tell you the real number, but let's say 1,000 soldiers. Okay? 1,000 soldiers, let's say, plus minus, costing millions of shekel every month, easily. So obviously, and I tell this to reporters all the time, obviously our state wants Hebron. And P.S., we have about, five, in good years we have about five, six 600,000 visitors a year to Maat HaMachpelah. It's, a, it's, one of the, it's one of Israel's top uh, tourism destinations. Not now, not under uh, the current knife jihad, which uh, uh, tourism has dropped. So the state of Israel obviously wants Hebron because it's willing to spend money, millions on it. But not really. It's not letting us grow. We buy land from Arabs. It doesn't let us settle them. Why? Because we have a disease called ambivalence. Ambivalence. This is the uh, disease of our time, ladies and gentlemen. And even in this room right now, many of us feel ambivalent. On the one hand, it is our ancestral homeland, but on the other hand, does it make sense to live there? What about all these Arabs? How about our Jewish and democratic state? How are we going to annex and yet, and yet not give people rights? And if we give them rights, they'll destroy us from within. We, we're, we got these questions, and these questions cause us to stutter step, and the stutter step causes us to have very bad PR because, because it doesn't make sense. I don't agree with the Europeans about anything, okay? Except for the following. The one thing I agree with the Europeans on is when they say... The Europeans say you can't have a two state solution and a settlement policy at the same time. That's what they say, and I think they're right. It's a tiny swath of land. You really can't have another country there and a, 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 and a settlement policy. But we tap dance around it. We tap dance around the issue, and we do this. First thing we do is we blame them. We'd love to give you the land, but you're bad. And because you're bad, I can't do it. Therefore, I have to have more of these people having babies here. So I have to give them another apartment. Oh, you killed a Jew. I'm putting up another apartment building. That's your punishment. So the first answer is, um, um, uh, you're the bad guy. But I'm staying here, but I'd love to give away the land. Or when they ask us, they tell us, this happens on campus all the time. They say to you, you stole our land. And you say, yeah, but we made the cell phone. Oh, right? well, they say, you stole our land! Yeah, but we have gay rights. <laughs> you stole our land! But we go to Haiti and help poor people, people that are, like, broken. We said, you know, we're really nice. <laughs> but what's the answer? Did you or did you not steal the land? When you say you want a two-state solution, that sounds very nice because, you know, when you're living in America, compromise sounds like a beautiful thing, right? I have something, you have something. We both have some part of the truth. We come to some kind of middle conclusion. That's not what it sounds like in the Middle East. When you're willing to say in the Middle East, sure, I'm willing to talk about Jerusalem and dividing Jerusalem. Here's what they think. This guy is totally spineless. I cannot even believe what I heard. Did you hear this guy just now? He just said, take my wife, do whatever you want, just don't hurt me. They don't hear it as compromise. They, I don't mean them, the Arabs. I mean us Middle Easterners. Okay? that just sounds ridiculous. And so we've created a narrative that is complex, ununderstandable. Which one is it? A two-state solution? Or do we want the settlements? Or when we justify it, wh- why are we there? We give all these random answers that have nothing to do with the issues. Ask a Jewish kid on campus right now. Let's go to Arizona, you, or whatever you have here. What's the, what's the college here? What's it called? Arizona State. Arizona State. Let's go to Arizona State and ask a Jewish kid. What's the answer? Did we steal their land or not? Uh, probably yes. Right? Probably yes. Or, or here's. The, remember the old one? The old one used to be. Um, what, what was the? It was the funniest thing. What would they used to say? Um, it's not occupied. It's what disputed? That's right. It's disputed. It, we say, they say, you're occupying our land. No, it's only disputed. That is not sexy, okay? That is just not a sexy answer. Uh, uh, especially since today, we, like, we, no matter how secular we are, we train our kids to act, act like Talmudists. Every answer is like a Talmudic answer. Well, according to this, blah, blah, blah. And, and well, it's actually this. They're speaking in passion, and we're speaking in, you know, in, in citations of, of international law. And so we have a policy right now which doesn't make sense. Furthermore, the average I don't know if did we touch on this? The average Israeli no longer believes that two state is possible. It's been tested. We said this, right? No. No, okay. It's been tested. It got tested now at least four times. The Sinai was like the holy grail of the land giveaway policy. The Sinai, you see, Eshai, it worked. You see, you don't know what you're talking about. This was 10, 15 years ago. I used to be like, you'll see. You'll see. I was speaking like an old prophet. You'll see what's going to happen in Sinai. And I was right because it's obvious to me. Today it is has an offshoot of, of, uh, uh, of ISIS, the, the Sinai province. I like the official name. It's very, very serious. Uh, the Sinai, uh, the ISIS-Sinai province. Okay? All right. But South Lebanon, we walked out of South Lebanon in the middle of the night, and now all that strip that we were in has how many? At least 200 serious rockets trained against us. We walked out of Gaza. 200,000, what did I say? 200,000 very serious rockets. And I can tell you, being involved in a unit which is facing Hezbollah, we are very much getting ready for a serious battle with them. Uh, and and one which 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 on the face of it, I never want to discount Israel's technology or or the the work of of God. But on the face of it, two hundred thousand rockets. Uh, b- by the way, the the tactic of war that we have against them is uh, basically scorched earth. That's the only thing we can do right now. The way that they've developed it, the only way we could deal with South Lebanon's rockets right now is just to, just to carpet bomb the sucker. Uh, because because the. the I just gave you the, the secrets. Please don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> um, South Lebanon, 200,000 rockets. Uh, Judea and Samaria, we gave away parts of Judea and Samaria under Oslo. And then, after a long terror war in which thousands of Israelis died, we had to go back in under Chomat Magin, Defensive Shield. That's Arik Sharon. Remember, Park Hotel, Pesach Night, uh, t- dozens dead. We finally go into to Judea and Samaria, and what do we do? We basically dismantle the Palestinian authorities' ownership of these places and put this, the army back around the, this, uh, these cities, like Sheh. Okay, so, so, so Oslo didn't work. And of course, the final, the real nail in the coffin was Gaza. Now, I was in Gaza for a month and a half before the evacuation. Don't let me tell you about the many Arabs that came to us and said, Don't do this, don't destroy our lives. Don't give this land to the worst elements. You don't understand who these people are. Arabs, farmers would come up to me. I'd never met them before in my life. Don't do this. But we knew better. You know, people like myself were saying, in a year from now, it's gonna be a terrorist state. And I was wrong, because it took six months. And, And it became now we have lost hundreds of Israeli soldiers in three wars in six years. It didn't work out well. It didn't work out well, and that one—the last war—turned Israelis' minds. You can give me an argument saying, "But it wasn't a negotiated. We didn't, uh, we didn't discuss. We didn't do this. We didn't do that." I'll tell you how the average Israeli sees it. We gave that land away. We wanted to create the first Palestinian state in our land, and it was immediately taken over by Hamas, and three wars have ensued. The average Israeli has not. Become totally enamored with religious Zionism. They have simply come to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense. Two-state solution does not make sense. But we're still dancing around it. We're still BSing around it. We're still giving the. T- and just this week, our, our beloved Prime Minister, uh, who I have tremendous respect for, and 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 really I think he's going to be remembered as a great Prime Minister, especially for the economic revolution in Israel. Uh, <laughs> You know what, I'm, I'm really happy that I was able to say that right now, because uh, uh, I was one, t- one time I was in Holland, you know, and um, one time I was in Holland, and I, and I was in a, ca- a cab, and I said, how do you guys like your, uh, your government here? He's like, oh yeah, good, yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> I hadn't heard anybody say a good thing about a government in years, and it's important that the Torah tells us not to curse our leaders. So we shouldn't curse our leaders. And I know many speakers would get up here and make fun of our prime minister. I think our prime minister is a great man in a lot of ways. When it comes to this, I don't think, and I have a right to still be a democratic person and and to talk about the the lack of, of vision and courage in this one. And that is, I think, our prime minister is still tap dancing around these issues. He's constantly saying, come on, Abbas, come on down, negotiate with me. Oh, see, he's a jerk. See, well, we know he's a jerk. He got his Ph.D. in anti-Semitic studies in, 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 in Holocaust denial. He, we know that he was involved in the financing of the Munich massacre. He's a really bad person. I mean, a really, really, really bad person. We know that. And so tap dancing around him and blaming him, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and again, we're now hearing about the French initiative. Ah, You on? Um, and we're hearing now about, you know, new discussions. This is all, I'm telling you folks, you are hearing now from a person who is talking about the cutting edge. That stuff, two state solution is not the cutting edge. It's not. Now what was the title of the talk? We were talking about alternatives to two state solution. Are you ready? Yeah. Here we go. Leave all that behind. Let's talk about possible alternatives. Now before we go to possible alternatives to two state, which I hope I explain why is a bad idea, which was I really think it was born in sin, it was never going to be a good idea. Who knows how much money was made by corrupt people off of this thing? It was not a good thing. Uh, And this did not lead to better life for us. But by the way, let's have a liberal moment here. It didn't lead to a better life for the Palestinians either. These people are under great oppression. My next door neighbors live, I live in South Korea and they live in North Korea. It's really like that. But like the only difference is it's like a house apart. (laughs) Like I live in places where like across the street there's North Korea. Like the People are being brainwashed a lot of times by our own money being funded into, like in Jerusalem, in East Jeru- Eastern Jerusalem, money that we're sending them, Israel, uh, uh, um, is being used in the worst possible ways. Um, two-state solution is done. Let's go forward with uh, for, for one-state solution. Whatever I'm going to tell you is going to somewhere stink a little bit, Okay? It's not going to be like, oh my God, Isha, how did you come up with such an incredible solution and no, you know, nobody saw it and so perfect. No, it's not going to be like that. There's going to be a place where it really stinks somewhere. It's got to stink a little bit because there's no perfect solutions to a very imperfect problem. So let's be real. Let's get real, okay? So get ready for it to stink somewhere and to bend a little bit. First thing is that how many Jews live in Judea and Samaria? 350,000? Now add, please, the 200,000 of Eastern Jerusalem, because that's how the international world sees it anyway. We have 550,000. Add a few more here and there because the numbers are a little this way. That way, let's say 600,000, okay? That's really probably the right number. Probably in Jerusalem, it's 220,000. Altogether, let's say 600,000. That's a lot of people. Okay? So you're not going to get rid of them. The, the Gush Katif thing was also a failure, of logistical failure of trying to move 8,500 people. And it still has not been resolved. You're not going to move 600,000 people. It's just not going to work out. And you're not going to put walls and make the country, the land so ugly with a lot of these gross walls that we've put up. So how do we move forward? I'm going to give you now what I see on the ground as options. Various options.
1: How many Palestinians live in...
0: Two and a half million live in Judea and Samaria, actual numbers. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about birth rate or what we call demographobia. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll talk about demography in a few minutes. First, let's talk, and I'm going to give you time for questions. Wait, what, what, what time do we have until? Ooh, here we go. I'm going to speak for 15 more minutes, Rabbi Shmuley. Please stop me at eight so we can get, get to, to people's questions. Right? I'm going to go through five different options very quickly. Five or six very uh, options, alternatives to two state. First thing, all my options are going to include the annexation of Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. Why? Because it's the natural thing to do. We have people there. It's our ancestral homeland. International law actually recognizes it, no matter what CNN tells you. And and we want it. You know, I like Putin. You know, around here people don't like Putin. What I like about Putin is like he's like Crimea, it's our land. Our people, our history, take it. Okay? I like that, you know? It's it's like a kind of he's got clar- you know, he takes off his shirt and he's got this clarity and this boldness. Wrestles a bear. You're like, "Yes." Okay? You know, he's got he's got a certain clarity about him. I wish we had at least you know what he wants about Crimea, right? You you get that feeling. Any case, um, Not uh, power. right? Not oh. power. Listen, my, I, all right, all right, all right. My, I, you know, let's let's keep it lighthearted. Uh, I think that I think my, my point is is that clarity has a certain clarity to it, and and uh, let's keep going. Alternatives to the two-state solution are going to, in my mind, include the annexation of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. That's the natural thing to do. We have done everything but annex. We we we're engaged. We've bought the dress. the, the wedding is uh, The wedding is planned. The photographer's in. The guests are sitting down. We've done everything but get married in Judean Samaria. Okay, we're just we're just not pulling the trigger. This these plans are going to involve pulling the trigger and moving uh, sovereignty over Judean Samaria. What we call in Hebrew ribonut sovereignty. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that talk called If Two-State is Dead. Now what? And, of course, the answer is, is that we're home. We're coming back home. And as I'm talking to you about this right now, uh, you heard me from Scottsdale, Arizona. But right now I'm sitting across from the Temple Mount uh, on, uh, in my apartment on my living room table uh, with the flag of Israel waving in front of the Temple Mount. This is, of course, on the Mount of Olives. There's a there's a kind of cavern between myself and the Temple Mount, but in any case, I'm looking at it right now. And I'm staring at it, and I'm thinking about being home. I'm thinking about coming back to our to our ancestral homeland, to our identity, and to serving God in Jerusalem. And we are part of the most incredible story ever told. It is therefore not surprising that there are uh, people that want to erase that great story, and also events and and dark energies that collude in order to stop this thing from moving forward. If you're listening to this show, you are on, you are connected to this incredible path, this incredible journey. You're part of this story. And I want to thank all the good people that make it happen, the good folks at jewishpress.com that put up all of our shows. Of course, I want to thank Hebron, the Jewish community of Hebron. And as I sit here right now, looking, facing towards the Temple Mount, my back is towards Hebron, about an hour away, and I think about the forefathers and mothers who are buried there and are the starters of this whole story. So I think about the root, and I think about the future of the Jewish people. And I think about you wherever you are out there, and I want you to be connected to it, and I want to be connected to you. I want you to be connected to me. So let's stay connected. Write me an email, Yeshai at com. I also want to thank uh, my producer, Moshe Herman, thank you so much for all the good work you do. I want to thank all the people that donate because it makes all the difference in the world. It, it lets us broadcast, so you're part of that broadcast as well. Check out YishaiFleyshire.com if you want to help the show out. In any case, when you come to the Land of Israel, make sure you reach out to me. Uh, my friend Jack is coming with a whole big family, and he's going to meet the broadcasters of thelandofisrael.com. And all my friends, all the people that I mentioned I, that helped the show are people that I've met. And I can't wait to to show you around The Mount of Olives Certainly in Hebron um, And in general To fall in love To fall in love with God again To fall in love with Israel again And to fall in love with the opportunity of living this life Shabbat Shalom friends God bless you wherever you are Stay tuned and stay connected And be strong